welcome to uh, today's events. I'm Earl Grinnells, uh, professor here at Baylor, uh, the immediate past president of the Association of Christian Economists, and I'd like to uh, introduce our speaker. In at least one biography, Arthur Brooks is described as an American social scientist and musician. Uh, it is true that he had a professional career from 1983 through 95. Um, and apparently was pretty good since, it, since he, had a, he was the associate principal French hornist with the city orchestra of Barcelona. That's something that uh, impresses me quite a bit, and I love French horn. Other evidence of his exceptional good taste and refinement uh, and ability, is, of course, is that he decided to get a Ph.D. in economics, which he got in 1998 uh, with the Rand uh, Graduate School. Uh, since then, he's held a number, and, and in very fast time, a number of eminent uh, and increasingly prominent positions, including the Louis Bantle Professor of Business and Government Policy at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, and the Martin J. Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. That's kind of a mouthful. I was talking to Dave Richardson uh, this morning, and he, he and I agree that Syracuse's loss is, uh, is Washington's gain. His uh, service includes many executive advisory bodies, including the advisory board of the John Templeton Foundation, uh, executive committee for the Association for Cultural Economics International. He's on 10 editorial uh, board positions and editorships. Um, and since January of this year, of course, is the president of the American Enterprise Institute. So I think we're very fortunate to have him to be speaking this morning. Um, I first became an admirer of his uh, and a fan when I read his book, Who Really Cares, and reviewed it for our own journal, Faith and Economics. In, in 2008, Arthur uh, published Gross National Happiness, Why Happiness Matters for America and How We Can Get More of It, another topic that I think is certainly right on the money. And he has a forthcoming book, The Virtue of Vice, Why Bad Things Are Good for Us. I'm definitely going to read that. I can't imagine how the title, what the title can mean, but I'd like to find out. Ultimately, I guess it's the ideas that matter. And I think Arthur Brooks has a, a good bit of those in abundance. So I'd like to uh, welcome him to our podium. Thank you. Arthur. Thank you, Earl. Uh, it's a delight for me to be here today. It's an honor for me to have the opportunity to, to address this uh, 25th anniversary conference uh, of the Association of Christian Economists. This is an organization that I've belonged to uh, since the end of my time at graduate school. Uh, and I, and I, as an assistant professor, or as a beginning assistant professor, uh, I looked around and saw that my views were not very well represented in the academy. Not my political views, that doesn't matter. What really mattered a lot was the fact that my worldviews were not very well represented in the academy, and I needed some sort of community. I needed some evidence that, the, that faith and intellect were not antagonistic to each other. Now, it sounds almost quaint to say that uh, somebody of good intellect can't be a serious Christian, perhaps to you, but as you know, we are living in a world today uh, in which the idea that faith and intellect can coexist is, uh, is somewhat controversial. And I thank you for the work that all of you who have been stalwarts of this organization, for the work that you've done over the years in providing me with community. And, and, and once again, such an honor for me to have the opportunity to talk to you today about the research that I've performed in the time between when I joined this organization and today. Uh, about a year ago, the John Templeton Foundation sponsored a symposium. And the symposium, which uh, uh, asked a number of prominent intellectuals to answer a question, had this question at its core. Does the private market corrupt morality? Now, this turned out to be a pretty prescient question because it was before the current market meltdown. But people were starting to ask this question. Is capitalism bad for morality? Are private markets inherently bad for morality? Now, the, many of the, the intellectuals that were in the symposium, or several of them, were colleagues of mine today at the American Enterprise Institute. Most of them at AEI said, no, 
there's no problem about a moral problem with private markets, but other prominent and important intellectuals said that there was. And as I was reading through the symposium, it was interesting, but it seemed to me that it asked exactly the wrong question. Not do private markets corrupt morality, but rather does bad morality corrupt markets? That seems to me today to be the real question of interest. It is my view that we have a problem of virtue that lies behind the current market disequilibrium. And that's what I'm going to argue today. And I'm going to try to argue that with data about private charity, which is my own area of research. I think that private charity is a pretty uncontroversial kind of virtue. And I'm going to show you that the connection between charity and prosperity is such that we can make the case that private morality is very important, that indeed virtue is important for the proper functioning of markets. And one of the things we should be thinking about today is not the crisis simply of markets, but the crisis of character that's leading to our problem in markets. This, I think, is a way in which our faith as Christians can inform what we believe in public policy. I'm going to talk to you more about that today as well. <clears throat> So in talking about charity, let's start with a few facts. Americans give uh, very generously, and they always have, as long as we've been collecting data. In 2006, uh, Americans gave about $300 billion privately to charity. Uh, that, 75% uh, of that came from private individuals. The uh, private individual giving is higher than in any other country, as I'll tell you about in a moment. Uh, to just give you a, a notion of what $300 billion in charity means, uh, the United States gives more charitably than the entire uh, national income of Sweden or Denmark or Norway. If the United States charitable giving were classified as an economy, it would be the, about the 30th biggest economy in the world. Now, that's kind of a journalistic way of looking at it, but I just want you to get your minds around the fact that so many Americans give and give so much. 75% of American families give each year. Three-quarters, as I just mentioned, of charitable giving comes not from foundations, not from corporations, not from the bequests of dead people, but people like you and me writing checks every year to our favorite charities. 50 to 60%, depending how you measure it, of people volunteer their time each year. Now, when you put this in, in an international context, it's really an extraordinary difference. The average American gives per capita every year three and a half times as much as the average French citizen to charity, seven times as much as the average German, 14 times as much as the average Italian. As economists, of course, the first thing we think is that this must have, a, have to do with our tax regime or the fact that we have higher average incomes. But when you correct for tax differences and you correct for income differences, the numbers don't change, or they don't change very much. In point of fact, this truly is a cultural difference between the United States and other countries around the world. If you're like me, and, and not everybody is, but if you're like me, you celebrate this. Um, it's, I would say you should be proud of this, but of course that's a deadly sin. So let's say that you should be pleased by that as an American. Now the question is for me, why does it matter? Now there's theological basis for trying to understand the importance of this, but, but I want to talk about the economic importance of this because after all, this is a talk on faithful economics. How can our faith inform what we understand about economics and in turn turn us into better stewards of the economy around us? So how does all of this charitable activity, which most of us would say is virtuous in very large part, how does it affect us economically? Now, as economists, here's how we're trained. We learn in our economics training that you have to have money before you give it away. We learn in the standard model that you have a budget constraint and you add up all of your expenditures and they have to add up to the budget constraint. So you have your money and you spend some of it on food and on housing and some you save and some of it you give away, but it all has to add up to what you had before. You have to have it before you give it away. Now, that turns out not to be the view that people, many people outside of our profession have. I taught, and it's strange as it seems. No, no, no. But hear me out. And uh, I, was, uh, I taught at a business school in a, in a department of entrepreneurship for the last several years. And I got to work with a lot of entrepreneurs. And they have this very strange view about charitable giving, that if they give more, they'll get richer. 
Now, that doesn't make sense because that busts up the whole model. You've got to have it before you can give it away, according to the economists. And the entrepreneurs say, no, 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 no. You've got to give it away, and then you'll get more. There's something generative, something creative about charity. Well, if you go back to what entrepreneurs have written throughout history, you'll find this all over the place. There is this notion that charitable giving is some sort of cosmic investment. John D. Rockefeller famously said in 1905, God gave me my money. Now, usually that quote is, is used as evidence that he was a bad man who believed that God made him rich in the face of the grinding poverty of America's Gilded Age. But that's actually not what he meant. He might have been a bad man, but here's, that's not what he meant in that quote. That, in that quote, he said, God gave me my money to use as I see fit for the good of my fellow man. He believed, this may seem like strange theology to you and to me, but he honestly believed that he had money to give it away, and the day he stopped giving it in the best way possible, God would take his money away. In other words, he had this view of an interrelationship between his giving and his getting, which turns out to be extremely common among entrepreneurs in this country who also, perhaps not coincidentally, turn out to be some of our most generous citizens and are some of our biggest philanthropists. <clears throat> now, a few years ago, over the course of doing my research in philanthropy, I set out to show that the Rockefeller view was wrong and our view is right that you have to have money before you give it away. And of course, the way that you do that is by collecting a whole bunch of money in, in either a time series or using proper instrument techniques between donations and, and income. And you show that the causality goes in one direction, and the causality goes from getting it to giving it. Set out to, now, the reason I set out to show this, of course, is because I'm fundamentally cynical. And I wanted to be able to say, no, no, no. No, no, you have to have it first. And, and there's even a policy reason why I wanted to show this, which is that you can't take all of people's money away in a confiscatory way and expect that people are going to continue to be good to each other. That's, what I would, that's really what my agenda was. Well, my agenda was thwarted. And the reason is because when I looked at the data, I found out that Rockefeller was right and that I was wrong. And I was so uh, profoundly wrong that it was impossible to deny in the data. And I'm going to tell you about it right now. And I'm going to tell you then why, what I think it means. The way that I started doing the analysis was this. I got a wonderful data source that was collected in, two, in the year 2000, which was the Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey. That was a survey conducted by Robert Putnam and his colleagues at Harvard uh, with community foundations around the country. 30,000 households in 41 communities were asked about their charitable giving and social capital habits, who they spend their time with, who they give to, how much they trust their neighbors, and also a full battery of exhaustive demographics, the kinds of things that we like when we run regressions. Uh, uh, do you go to church? How often do you go to church? Uh, how much money do you make? What's your education? All the things that we need to correct for when we're trying to understand how people give and how people get. It's the best, most comprehensive look at what people are doing for each other voluntarily in the United States. In 41 communities all over the place, here in Texas, on the East Coast, in the West Coast, big towns, uh, little cities, everything else in between. It's a wonderful source of data, and I worked with it for a long time. And when I finally got to the point where I could ask my key question, does giving lead to income or does income lead to giving? I found that indeed, as we have always known, when people earn more, they give more away. It's not very surprising. You've, I found that uh, consistent with all of the past economic evidence on the subject that there is a positive income elasticity of giving of about one, a little bit under one, between 0.7 and 0.9. Okay, so a little bit under unity. So there's evidence that when people get, they do give, as you'd expect. But using an instrumental variables approach, and question and answer if you're really interested in the technique, I can tell you more about it. I also found some evidence, some strange evidence that I couldn't accept, that the opposite was also true. That when you corrected for the appropriate variables, you'd find that when people give more, they would get more. Specifically, I found that the, the marginal effect of giving in income was about 3.75. Well, translated into everyday talk, you have two families that are completely equivalent to each other. Same education level, same region of residence, same profession, same number of kids. But one family gives $100 away to charity more than the other. 
The data say that that giving family will earn $375 more, and it seems to be attributable, according to the instrumental variables approach, to the charitable gift. Well, that doesn't make sense. Now I have a problem. I have a problem here. And the problem is that my data don't agree with my theory. So what do we do in the economics profession when that happens? The answer is we throw away the data, which is precisely what I did. I didn't publish it. I didn't do anything with it for a long time. And a colleague of mine suggested, you know, you should look at that question from an aggregate standpoint. You should look at that over time, because if you can get a nice long time series at the national level, you can use a vector autoregression approach, which is not dispositive of causality, but it virtually always works when we, when we, in, in, in experiments. So what I did was I looked at charitable giving per capita corrected for inflation from 1954 to 2004, a, a 51-year time series about charitable giving. And I looked in the United States, you know, of course, correcting for cost of living. And, and the first thing that you see when you look at these time series is that both per capita income and per capita charitable giving have gone up astronomically over the period. Uh, average you know, per capita giving from 1954 to 2004, corrected for inflation, has gone up <clears throat> by 150%, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, in an already rich country, you don't see uh, purchasing power increases like that. It's very unusual, and it's a, it's a testament to a lot of prosperity, something that we all, we all enjoy and like a lot. Now, if you look at charitable giving, you see that over the same period that charitable giving per capita corrected for inflation went up by 190%, which is a wonderful story because it says that we've gotten a lot richer, but we've given even more of it per capita away over the same period. This actually is contradictory to what a lot of nonprofits think. I've been working with nonprofit organizations uh, very intensively for the past 10 years. And one of the most common beliefs from nonprofit executive directors is that charitable giving is shrinking in this country, that people are not getting more generous, they're getting less generous. Now, the reason that they believe that, in spite of the facts that I just pointed out to you, is that there's been a proliferation of nonprofits that's gone up even faster than the amount of charitable donations. In other words, we have too much of a target-rich environment for our philanthropy, and we're spreading out more uh, nonprofits over a slightly increasing pool of charitable gifts. Explaining this to nonprofit executive directors, they say, oh, I understand. It's, not, it's scant comfort. Nonetheless, it contradicts the notion that Americans are getting less charitable. They're, they're not. They're getting more charitable. And I think that's a good thing. The question, of course, is which is pushing and which is pulling? Now, with any empirical work, you, never, you can't prove anything. You just have to get to the point where you, the, 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 empirical the weight of the empirical evidence crushes you, so you change your beliefs. That's my view. And, and what we find in uh, a time series approach using this data, these macroeconomic data is that, once again, there is evidence using, using uh, vector autoregression techniques that, that average, you know, increasing per capita income has indeed driven charitable giving. But the truth, uh, the, the reverse is also true in the data. Specifically, you find that a 1% increase in private charitable giving, it appears in the data, would result in about a, you know, a $2 billion increase in private individual check writing, translates in these data over time to about a $39 billion increase in GDP. Now, $39 billion in our GDP is not very much. I mean, that's three months in Iraq. It's, not, it's, it's, it's found money behind the cushions of the couch at the White House these days. It's, and, and $2 billion, that's a lot of charity. $39 billion in GDP, that's, that's not so much at all. But think about the multiplier. And think about what the input. If all of this that I were finding were right, think about what it would say. The first part that looked at the individual level suggests that charitable giving is a great investment, just like entrepreneurs say. The second part says that it's actually a patriotic act. If it were true that $2 billion in charitable giving translated somehow to anything like $39 billion in GDP, that's a multiplier that's truly good for the country. That's jobs, that's growth, that's opportunity. This could be something very, very big. Now, at this point in my research, I still didn't buy it. I still didn't buy it because it, it just sounds like I'm, I'm you know, searching for the structural equations of 
God or something. It sounds like a, the hand of God in the universe. And, and I'm not going to find that empirically. We're not supposed to be able to find anything, notwithstanding a lot of the work that the, the John Templeton Foundation funds about finding you know, evidence of, of the tangible effects of spirituality in the world. I don't think any, any of us expect or believe that we should be able to find these, this kind of evidence. So I was frustrated. I, I thought it was spurious correlation all along the way. And I was talking to colleagues outside of the economics profession about the subject. And I don't incidentally uh, uh, recommend that. But it, it, it turns out that people outside of economics, they, they, they don't like us. So, uh, but I was talking to a psychologist who does work in, in, in charitable giving. And I said, I've got, I'm getting this really weird effect. It looks like charitable giving increases prosperity for people. I said, well, of course it does. We've known that for 30 years. Tell me more. I didn't know that. Tell me more. He says, we just didn't measure prosperity in terms of money. We measure it in, some, in, in terms of what really matters. <laughs> what matters more than money? I mean, that's, that's crazy. And he said, no, 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 no. We've been measuring it in terms of happiness, in terms of thriving, in terms of optimism. We've known for 30 years that when people give more, they improve their quality of life. And of course, when people have a higher quality of life, they make more money. That's just obvious. It's not even worth testing that. And he said, well... So, so I said, why? And I started looking into the psychological literature that explained the links between charitable giving and happiness. Because if I can figure that out, maybe I really can find evidence that this is more earthbound. Some earthbound secular explanations for why when people give, they would get better off. And sure enough, there are two strands of literature in psychology that explain with great clarity how people improve their quality of life and become more productive when they give more to other people. The first is what happens to them neurologically. The second is what happens to them socially. And let me explain both very briefly. There is evidence that asks the question, uh, what happens to people's brains when they give? I mean, it's, it sounds like a strange question to those of us that are outside of the world of brain research. It's no idle question for people who do experiments on the neurological activity of our personalities. And in, back in the late 80s, incidentally, there was a, a relatively famous paper that, that discovered evidence of an effect called, called the helper's high. I don't know if you remember this. It was when psychologists found that we release endorphins in our brains when we give to others. So there were experiments where people volunteered and gave, and they found that they got little spurts of opioids in their brains, which made them feel a little high. It feels good to give to other people. Now, that got a lot of attention. They got press attention, among other things. And, and to me, that's pretty interesting, but it's not useful for what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to talk about the difference between, or the connection between charity and success, between virtue and success, between virtue and our economy, not between uh, charity and feeling good physically. And, and, and I'll tell you why it doesn't make such a, you know, that studies of getting high are not necessarily always useful for talking about success. And, and you know, in, in our own lives, we find evidence of this. It's, uh, in most of the people I went to high school with sort of specialized in getting high. And uh, looking back on those folks and keeping in touch with some of them, it turns out not to have been a, a life success strategy. So uh, that's an interesting result, but it's not that useful to me. Follow-on research is really interesting because the follow-on research didn't say when you give, you get high. It says when you give, you become more productive because you experience lower stress. Now, there are good studies that talk about stress hormone levels when people are serving each other, and they all come to the same conclusion that people do experience far less stress. And one of the things that we know very clearly from management studies is that if people can do their jobs with less stress, they will do them more joyfully, more productively over a longer period of time, and they won't burn out. This is, you know, lowering your stress level is a secret to success. This is something that we know with, with very, very little ambiguity. And the studies show that. One famous study from, from Duke University in the mid-1990s that, had a, that was measuring the stress hormone levels of senior citizens in a controlled experiment where some of them were being asked to give massages to babies. I'm not making this up. And it's, I, I, the, the wonderful thing about academia is, of course, you can get tenure for anything. And, and this is an example of that. So they had half of the senior citizens were giving babies rubs, and the other half weren't, and then they were measuring the cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine levels in their brains. And what they found out is that those that were doing this unilateral act of comfort 
for these little children were lowering their stress hormone levels by 50% compared to those that weren't doing it. It turns out also that it's much better to give a massage than to get one, in case you were wondering. Um, I suggest that you use that line on your spouse. Um, it's, uh, it, and every study has shown basically the same thing. A great way to lower your stress hormone levels, of course, is to serve other people. Now, the bottom line is, I'm not going to go through every study on this for you, but you get the impression, you get the, you get the idea. Your brain benefits when you give. Other people's brains also benefit when you give. One of the, uh, the very powerful findings in the literature is on the social effects of charitable giving and the way that people treat you when they see you in charitable acts. Uh, the, the University of Kent in England several years ago, three, uh, four years ago now, conducted what many of us are familiar with, which is called a cooperation game. Uh, cooperation games are very common in experimental economics, and what they want to understand is how people voluntarily cooperate with each other and who these people are. Uh, a, a typical cooperation game looks something like this. Um, we'll break all of you into relatively small groups, and I'll give you some money when you come in the door. And the first thing I'm going to ask you is, in front of everybody else, how much of your money do you want to put into the common fund? And then I'm going to look in the common fund, and I'm going to double it, and I'm going to spread it out equally among the people who are here. Now, if you think about it, the best strategy is complete cooperation for everybody to put in all their money, because then everybody gets 200%. On the other hand, the dominant strategy is going to tend to be for you to hold all yours back and hope everybody else puts their money in, because then you come out with almost with between two and 300%, if you do the math. You see, depending on the size of the groups. Now, of course, what you find is that in experimental situations, people are never perfectly cooperative nor perfectly uncooperative. And the typical questions are, do people cooperate more when people are watching? The answer is yes. Do men cooperate more than women? The answer is no. And, and, the, and the studies have gone on and on like this. Now, the interesting thing from the study at the University of Kent was this. There was an unannounced second phase to the experiment in which each one of these groups was asked after the cooperation game to elect a team leader for a second task of some, uh, solving a puzzle or something. Now, they were all strangers. They didn't know anything about each other on these teams except the level of cooperation in phase one. And then they were asked to elect team leaders. Now, what the, the researchers were trying to look at was the connection between being selected as a leader and how much you gave in the first, in the first uh, phase of the experiment. And what they found was that in 82% of the cases, the biggest giver from phase one was elected as the leader in phase two. The studies following on to that show the same thing, and the basic conclusion, or the logical conclusion, this is, once again, this is not dispositive, but it's highly evocative. It says that giving is a leadership characteristic, that we have always been taught as Christians that we should lead as servants and serve as leaders, that servant leadership, in point of fact, is an empirically strong strategy that when people see you serving, they will perceive a leader. Now, that, of course, connects to prosperity. That connects to success, because people who are lifted into leadership positions, in virtually all circumstances, they will perform better economically than those who are not lifted into leadership circumstances. In these two ways, and in several others, we find that there are earthbound links between charity and success, between charity and prosperity. And now suddenly I'm thinking to myself, how come I never believe this in my data? And I was finding these data, and the first thing that, this is my problem as an economist, is the first thing that I saw that, that seemed to contradict my narrow model, because there are many economists who are not bound by the narrowness of the model, but I was bound by it, and I thought, since it seems to contradict that, it must be something that either is wrong or has to do with forces that are not earthbound, and therefore I reject. That was my problem, was my lack of imagination. That was holding me back from being able to express my faith through my work. And that is typical of me. That is typical of my career and something that I need to fight against more and more every day. So now I'm at the point where I, I have to say, Giving is a virtue that I believe the evidence suggests is good for me, it's good for my community, and indeed it's good for my country. And it's not good just because it feels good, it's good because it actually leads to things like economic growth that we like. 
it leads to healthier, happier, stronger, and richer individuals. I didn't tell you about the links between health and giving and citizenship and giving, but suffice it to say that they're even stronger than the links I've told you about here. Uh, a more prosperous nation needs people who serve each other. It needs people who, at least on this dimension of virtue, are willing to exercise that virtue. So the question is this now, for me, and perhaps for you. Who are the people who are doing most of this giving? And Earl gave it away <laughs> in his remarks at the beginning. The answer is people of faith in this country. The Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey and every other survey says that people who take their religious faith seriously give fundamentally more than people who don't take their religious faith seriously in acts of charity toward others. Uh, people who are religious, which the way I define it arbitrarily as a social scientist, is attending, attending a house of worship almost every week or more. 91% give versus 66% of people who never attend a house of worship. Uh, 67% of religious people give time versus 44% of secularists. People who are religious give four times as much money to charity each year as secularists, despite the fact that their incomes are the same. And when you correct for income using the techniques that we're all so familiar with, you find that this, uh, this uh, differential in charity persists in its entirety. Now, here's the interesting thing that I asked at this point in my research. I want to know which religion. Now, the reason I want to know which religion is for years I've been reading literature that says that my group, my, my club, gives less than everybody else. I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a serious Roman Catholic. And I tell you, I've been putting up for this, with this for years, that we don't give anything, right? that we serve less, that we're less connected to our communities. And uh, I've always, I didn't want to disprove that. I just wanted to know. And I wanted to know what, what I could do. Now, it turns out here's the problem with all the studies that say the Catholics give less. The problem is that social scientists tend to be a very godless group. Social scientists turn out among academics to be the group that attend church the least and are most likely to call themselves agnostic or atheist. The result is that most social scientists don't really understand the experience of faith. So how do they measure it? The answer is wrong. In most surveys, they'll say, okay, I'm going to correct for faith. How do I do it? I'm going to put in a dummy variable that says what faith I, I associate with. And it'll be Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, other, that kind of thing. It turns out that doesn't soak up anything. The reason it doesn't is because it has to do with the intensity of the practice, not with the actual association. That's what really matters when you're trying to explain some of the variance in your data out there. Now, and the difference between, here, in a nutshell, is the difference between Catholics and, and Protestants when you look at the data. Um, if you ask a Catholic, an 80-year-old Catholic who has not been to church since his first communion, what's your religion? You'll say, I'm Catholic. And that's because it's an ethnic distinction. If you ask a Protestant who hasn't been in a month, he's starting to get kind of nervous, and he says, oh, I better be honest, nothing. Right? So <clears throat> that's a big difference empirically. You have to correct for what people do not with their association. And when you do that, you soak up all of the variance in charitable giving. 92% of practicing Protestants give. 91% of practicing Catholics give. 91% of practicing Jews give. 89% of practicing Muslims. That's where the action is. The action is in practice, not with the actual religion. Now, if you're like me, the first thing you're thinking is, yeah, but they're all given to their churches. And, and, and I talk to our secularist friends a lot about this, and, and I believe strongly in the spirit of open debate on these ideas. And part of the reason is because I want to know if I'm wrong on this. And, and my colleagues are really smart, and a lot of them are not religious. And, they'll, and the first thing that they always come up with is, yeah, but they're all just giving to religious organizations, and you've got to cancel that out. Now, Earl objected to that idea in, the, in their introduction. Perhaps you will join me in saying that actually giving to your church is charitable giving because it's voluntary, among other things. But most secularists believe that giving to a church is like paying your greens fees. It's like joining a country club, right? That's what most secularists think about houses of worship. So just for argument, let's get rid of all of that. Let's get rid of all religious giving and see what still happens. Only secular giving. 71% of religious people give. 61% of secularists give. Only religious uh, volunteering. 60% of religious people do it. 39% of secular people do it. In point of fact, if it were not for religious people in your community, your PTA would shut down. That's what this says. Informal giving. 
I have data on a lot of different informal types of giving. Religious people are twice as likely as seculars to give blood. They're more likely to help the homeless on the street. They're more likely to give up their place in line. They're more likely to give up their seat on the bus. They're more likely to give back mis uh, change mistakenly given them by a, a cashier at the Walmart. The list goes, we have data on everything. The list goes on and on. There is not, I have seen in 10 years, I have never seen one type of charitable giving where religious people do not dominate secularists utterly. Now, how does that translate to virtue? I'm going to leave a lot of that to you, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The first question is, why the big difference between people of faith and, and secularists in this way? And there are two big explanations. One is nature, and the other is nurture. In other words, we just learn to give since we're kids, and the other is we've got a different kind of wiring. So let's take both of those in turn very briefly, because there's literature, there's evidence on both of these counts. Religious people, of course, true. <clears throat> There's supply, you see, experience the supply of giving and the demand for giving all the time, every week. Right? You've got the basket coming right in front of you. Give. That, of course, is very reinforcing. You're also hearing that it's good to give, and furthermore, you're th you have opportunities to give to really good causes. From the time that you're little, that has to help in charitable giving habits. It's senseless to think that it wouldn't, that there wouldn't be a nurture component in our charitable giving. But there's also possibly a nature component, and this is brand new, really provocative work. And we don't know the answers to this, but I just want to throw out the, the, the new lines of research that suggest that there, are, there could be some differences. Some of you know about the identical twin studies that have been carried out over the past few years, particularly at Minnesota and University of Virginia, that ask, these are studies that take twins, especially identical twins, who are separated at birth and, and adopted to separate families. This is wonderful stuff here, because what this data, what these data provide are a near-perfect social experiment. It's almost as if social scientists were running adoption agencies and trying to collect data. And, and what they'll ask, what they've done is they've, they've tracked identical twins in their 40s who are adopted to separate families and ask them about their preferences and beliefs and, and see to what extent their different family environments influenced it versus their common genes. Uh, now, one of the things that we, it, the, the bottom line is that we always find that that far more of our personalities than we ever thought possible are explained genetically. It's a, it's a shocking thing, as a matter of fact. Forty percent of religiosity is explained genetically, according to most of these studies. Other, and it's not your religion, it's the intensity of your religion. Actually, none of, of the difference in religion is explained genetically, but the amount that you practice. Forty percent of your political views, the variance in political views, is explained this way. And the list goes on and on. Now, from, from my own research, I've, I've written a lot about happiness. 50 to 80 percent of baseline cheerfulness is explained genetically, which, when you think about it, is, is pretty depressing um, how, how little uh, is at our disposal. And, you know, and I, was, I, I told my wife, you know, the 50 to 80 percent of happiness is explained genetically. She said, she said, well, you know, next time, well, now I realize it's true that your mother made you unhappy. <laughs> so, there, there, there is no reason to speculate. There's, the research is not in on this, but there's no reason to, to believe it's possible that there's not a genetic link in our personalities between charity and religion. The service gene, it's something on our genome, potentially. We don't know the answer to that. We don't know how we're wired. And this is not antagonistic to our faith at all, of course, because we're talking about how we're built. Now, and still, there's probably at least... 50 to 80 percent, that comes from the environment, and that means that we still have a duty to teach others who don't happen to, to share this wiring if it in fact is the case. This is an, an important area of research, as far as I'm concerned, understanding nature versus nurture in virtue and in faith. Whatever the explanation, whatever the explanations that we choose, this all leads me to a very important question. And I don't get to ask this question very often in public, because I'm not talking to explicitly Christian groups very much in public. The, the question is this. What does everything I've told you today mean to me as a Christian economist? What do I think it could, I will humbly submit, could mean to you as Christian economists? It's hard to skim, even skim the Bible without finding a lot of references to charity. Charity is important, biblically. 
Give that which is within, uh, within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Luke 11.41. Now, the obvious interpretation of this for us has always been, give more. It's a good thing to do. You should give more. But what these data say is that it goes deeper than that. What these data say is that giving is as much a question of teaching as it is reaching into our own pocketbooks and volunteering our time. And, and here's why I say that. What the data say, if you believe the data, if you believe that there's, ev- there, there's reason to think that what I've found in the data might be right and what the psychologists have been finding for 30 years is in, indeed correct, is that our gifts to others are a gift to ourselves. That the prime beneficiary of charitable giving is the giver. Now, this is very helpful to mes- message for me as a fundraiser. As the president of the American Enterprise Institute, let me tell you, I love this because I get to go out and say, look, you should really write us a check. You'll make out. <laughs> Everything will be fine. It, the recession will end sooner <laughs> if you write me a check. But the data say that this, that we should believe this. I mean, it's, there, there's more work to be done. It's not perfect. But there's, it's probably foolish to reject this out of hand at this point. And, and if it indeed is true, then giving is not just giving to others. It's teaching other people to give because the gifts are gifts themselves to the giver. We have a teaching role as part of our Christian apostolate about giving, about virtue itself, about teaching this kind of virtue. And furthermore, we actually have an opportunity when we think about public policy to live, to, 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 to spread Christian virtue uh, throughout our economy by thinking about public policy as a, as a, poli- uh, by thinking about private charity as a public policy matter. So the question is this then, how do we get more charitable giving among others as our gift to others? And the, the first thing to do is to fight against some myths. Because what I've been doing is I've been telling you something relatively counterintuitive the whole time. A big myth. you got to have it before you can give it. But there are other myths that are more common that I think we have to combat. Myth number one is that giving makes us poorer. That's, that, that's sort of the, 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 the common version of the economists, the, the, the neoclassical microeconomists myth. The man on the streets doesn't say, well, there's a budget constraint. and there's No, the man on the street says, you give, you don't have it, you're poorer. Right? That's wrong. The data say that giving makes you richer, it, most importantly in, in non-financial ways, but even financially. Myth number two is that people are naturally selfish. I hear this all the time. People are naturally selfish, and that's why they frequently don't give. People are not naturally selfish. When we are our best selves, we are giving, which, which is to suggest not that we're not selfish, because we are, but we're not naturally selfish. We are unnaturally selfish. When we are our best selves, in tune with our what the data say, our cognitive equilibrium, we're giving. Myth number three is that giving is a luxury. It's not. Giving is a necessity. You find that the most income mobile people in lower income, uh, the, the lowest income quintile, are the biggest givers. The data say this is a secret to success. It's also worth pointing out that people in the lowest income quintile who are income, who, who are income mobile, give a, the biggest part of their charity away of any group in American society. The, the working poor who are income mobile give more as a percentage of their income than the rich in this country and a lot more than the middle class. We can take a lesson from the working poor and the working lower middle class in this country when it comes to charity. For them, it's not a luxury. For them, it's a necessity. And finally, here's a myth, myth number four, which is that we can afford to do without charity. If we, I hear this a lot in academia, uh, if we just did our job in this country, we would be providing for our needs publicly and we wouldn't need to give charitably. I've taken on this argument again and again. And I can tell you, there are all kinds of good reasons to deal with needs among the poor and public goods. Markets, in fact, do fail, as we've seen, and any good microeconomist will tell you that's true. But I will also tell you that the day that we substitute private charity for public subsidies in every realm is the day we start to get unhealthier, unhappier, and poorer. How do we get more beyond these myths? And, and, and I'll give you two, two more thoughts, and then I'm, going to, then I'm going to finish. The first is teaching. 
and the second is giving publicly. Uh, the evidence says that giving is a learned behavior to a very large extent, notwithstanding anything I might have said about the human genome, about which we know a little at this point. But giving does, in fact, involve a lot of learning. What can we, the question for us is, what can we do to teach this more among our students, in our families, and in our communities? It's a good strategy. And, and the second idea is, how can we give more publicly? You know what, I have, I have donors who come to me a lot, and they say, I want to give, but I want to give anonymously. I say, please don't. Let me be able to say who you are. And the reason is because giving is subject to peer effects. People mimic each other. People mimic successful people. I want people to mimic giving that they've done to the American Enterprise Institute and to your universities and to my church and your church. And part of the reason I want them to do that is not because of the organizations, but because of them and because of the prosperity, happiness, and health that they will enjoy as a result. Now, I realize that I am contradicting a very important principle, which is this. When thou doest alms, let not thy right hand know what thy left hand doeth. Right? Anonymous giving is the best. I'm not really contradicting that. I'm just submitting this for your consideration. Public giving, <laughs> public giving is a, is, can be a very explosive multiplying act. So I leave that for, your, for what that means. I leave that interpretation to you. Here's my final thought. Charity as a form of virtue shows that virtue itself is key to success, key to market success, and key to non-market success. In my view, that is well enough established that we should embrace it. This is a path to faithful economics for us. And the reason is because we as Christians can be stewards of our economy through this kind of virtue that we're committed to living every day. This is the economic link, in my view, one economic link between our secular identities and our true Christian selves. Thank you. Arthur is willing to take questions, so if you have a question, just step up to the mic. Kind of stand here so that the television can see your face. B.J. Hill, it seems like it's just a short link, though, from your argument to what we think of as the prosperity gospel. Uh, some of us are pretty nervous. The reason why one would be a believer is because it will then yield great material blessings, mm. which seems to be not necessarily the best motive for uh, committing to a lack of belief. So that's the first question. Second question, I've only skimmed the book Passing the Plate, uh, which seems to, if I understand it, argues we really don't give very much. How do I put together two completely separate questions? But the, mm. Are you familiar with the book yep. Passing the Plate? Is that data driven by a different source than yours? The um, wonderful questions. The pro it is. It makes me very. The prosperity gospel makes me very uncomfortable. I'm very nervous, and I and I share your concern about that. I have to say, I I have never met anybody who will give because they think it will make them richer. I in other words, people who believe that can't make themselves give, in my view. That the wonderful thing about this is that people come across this, people who give anyway are the ones who come across the truth of this. That said, uh, this is a, a, the, the, the right motives for giving are something that we have to guard assiduously. This is a different part of our stewardship as Christian people. Not just the behavior, which is the giving, but the motive, which is in the heart. And I didn't deal with that at all. I think that we have to be very careful and very, uh, and, and very concerned about the motives that people have to give and be as uh, assiduous about dealing with that as we deal with trying to get people to give in the first place. So and that's, a, that's a very important concern that you have. Now, there's a book out there called Passing the Plate, which does show that basically the point is this. Christians give a lot less than their religions say they're supposed to. That's the basic point of passing the plate. Now, what it doesn't say is that Christians give a lot less than secularists. Christians give a ton more than secularists, but we give a lot less than 10%. So basically, the, 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 the secularist attack on Christian charity has gone from, you guys don't really give, to, okay, so you give. But you don't really give to secular things, which is also falsified, to, you guys don't give nearly as much as you say you're supposed to give, which I'm sorry. I don't think that's a very strong argument from secularists who are giving 
uh, on average between one half of one percent and one percent, whereas Christians are giving more like between two and four percent. Is it ten percent? No. Should we be doing better? Yeah. But I'm not taking that criticism from secularists who are basically trying to, to, to base the concept of Christian charity in the first place. Thank you for that. Just a few comments first. And, uh, I really enjoy both your books. Thank you. And, and I guess what tickles me, I do send uh, Who Really Cares to liberals, and I say read it in a week. You know, but they, they never get back to me. But and it does tickle me that the mainstream media has said basically nothing about the books. But I think there are two very, very powerful statements. Uh, and then the other comment is just somebody from uh, Our Redeemer in New York came to me. Uh, they want to do a study of generosity. And their underlying hypothesis is that giving to churches is suboptimal. And I said, I don't think so. And nobody's explained, nobody's explored that. But my straw man is, back to your research, I think I could argue the effect you're finding is false. If you haven't adjusted your time series data for the age distribution and for the wealth distribution, all you're picking up is a permanent income effect and a wealth effect. You're not picking up people you know, giving more money than they have if there's a permanent income you know, idea at a web. And I would argue that as you move up the income distribution, wealth increases faster than income. Hmm which then makes people more charitable. So right. what do you think? Well, uh, there, there, there is a differential wealth and income elasticity of giving. Uh, and in point of fact, if you are to do time series work, with, particularly with vector autoregression, and you don't correct for uh, in, in income age cohorts and economic growth effects, you really could be picking up those things, which is exactly, I, I do correct for those things precisely for that reason. Um, it's easy to make that mistake, and I, and I, and I am sure I remember making that mistake early on in my research until smart economists like you said, <laughs> you, uh, yeah, and, and so that actually is, uh, that, that is a real concern in these types of things. And it does, to some extent, attenuate the effects that we're talking about, but with, with the proper controls, it doesn't do these things. Now, um, back to your earlier point, uh, the, the book, a lot of the material here that I talked about here comes from my 2006 book, Who Really Cares? Uh, and it was controversial, and, and part of the reason is because it did have some political points to it uh, that, that people on the political right tend to give more on the political left. But one of the things that I find very, very strongly in that book is that it's not because of politics per se. It has to do with the fact that it, today there are four times as many religious conservatives as there are religious liberals in this country, and that religious liberals give every, much as, give every bit as much as religious conservatives. This is an important thing to keep in mind because what it suggests is that the, that the, the giving apostolate should not be relegated to any, to, to any corner of the political environment, that this should be common cause between those of us who who believe in open political debate, and, and those of us who have strong political views but recognize that we, we might not be right. You know, I, uh, uh, one of the problems that I, I experienced, I learned a lot when I wrote that book, because I, I'm an academic, or was an academic, and I wrote the book, and then strangely, a, a lot of people read it, which I wasn't expecting. I mean, that, you know, it's who expects this type of thing? And, uh, and, and when that happened, I found myself on you know, the Rush Limbaugh show, for example. And I found that in uh, all of the press, I was waving my arms, backing up, saying, no, 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 that's not the reason. I mean, don't interpret my work that way. And it was too late. Uh, it was too late. And it, it, there's a sort of a cautionary tale about how you're supposed to talk about your work. And I found that I was defending the opposing point of view more than I was defending the point of view that I, I, I think that I was, I think, I thought that I was writing when I wrote the book. It's a very, a very interesting phenomenon. Thank you. I think it's off. I think it pushed it on the very bottom. There's a button. On the right. It was on? It's not on yet. Is it on? One, two. Uh, first of all, I want to be clear that I don't have anything against giving. I give about an eighth of my income, and as far as I know, I've never gotten a penny from giving it. Uh, but my question concerns uh, who you work for. It's a two-part question. First of all, uh, isn't the, uh, the main purpose of the American Enterprise Institute 
to represent the interest of business corporations in the state of Israel. And, and second, and, and, and aren't you, in, in, in working for them, aren't you working as a representative of, of those interest groups? And how much of the funding for the American Enterprise Institute comes from business corporations? Um, American Enterprise Institute uh, is founded on three principles. Uh, they're not shared by everybody, but they are the principles since 1943 nonetheless. Expanding liberty, increasing individual opportunity, and strengthening free enterprise. Now, the interpretation of that could be that we represent business organizations. Uh, my view is that we represent free enterprise as a core element of American culture. That's my view, and I think it's an important point of view. Um, I have, we have no contact with any business organizations in Israel. We get uh, approximately a third of our uh, funding from corporations, but none of it is tied to any specific projects. We make sure we're assiduously uh, uh, um, clear in our funding that, uh, organi that business organizations provide general funding and it's not tied to any specific projects. And furthermore, that we're not, as I suspect that I would cash a check from a business in Israel, but they just haven't been forthcoming at this point. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to have to use that. I'm going to have to argue that people think this, so they should be giving more um, uh, along those lines. So it really does come a third from that. Now, that said, that said, there are, we believe, as one of our core mission ideals in open debate, we believe in open debate and adherence to data, and that means I want to know about people who think that what we're doing is wrong. I want to know honestly what we're doing that's not correct and bad for this country for two reasons. One is I think we're going to win these arguments, but number two, I want to know first when we are in fact incorrect. And that's the reason that if any of you, uh, and I invite you to AEI, when you are there, you will find all different points of view represented in any one of our public panels. We believe so strongly in open debate that that is, uh, and that is such a non-negotiable principle that we're willing to hear, no, we, we demand to hear criticism of our mission and the execution of our mission because we believe it has to be right. Thank you for your comment. Yeah. Arthur, thank you very much for your uh, talk today and also speaking at Azurek on very similar themes. Uh, it's perhaps taken me two weeks actually to think of the question I want to ask you. Oh. <laughs> um, Firstly, just a comment. I'm not sure whether you've read Aquinas at all, but it actually strikes me that much of what you're saying mm. actually comes from that tradition within Catholic thought. So mm. um, there's very little, in fact, I think, that is actually new in what you said. Mm. That, that, that we, we've, read, we've known many of these things for a long time. But I was wondering, as you went through this, um, the model you presented seemed remarkably linear and suggested, therefore, that we should actually give everything, mm. um, perhaps not so much like, um, the, like Aquinas' approach, perhaps more like St. Francis. We should just strip off in front of the bishop and uh, put ourselves under the protection of the church, and that would make us all richer, mm. um, which I presume is not what you're actually proposing. So my question is whether, we've done, whether you've done any international studies, because um, if what you were saying was true, then it should be that with much higher level of giving States than in Europe, that since in the post-war period, that the income gap between the two countries, the two regions, should actually be increasing. And mm. my impression is that it's actually been falling. So um, there seems to be a, a collision there between um, the story that you're telling and some of the other facts you can actually observe around this. Um, uh, I am delighted if I'm finding empirical evidence that Aquinas was right. Um, I, and of course, as, as as a Catholic intellectual, I've, I've read Aquinas, and there's nothing that's correct and true under the sun that's really brand new. And, and I mean, it's the truth is the truth, and we we I, I think that as as serious intellectuals, we're engaged in an ex, in, in an exercise of re-uncovering the truth and stating the truth generation after generation with the best data that we have available. Aquinas had different data than I had, and his, his data came from relevant experience and superior intellect. We have, I have regression software these days that, that's very, very helpful given the, given the fact that the, the limits on my intellect are substantial compared to, Aquin, to Aquinas and, 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 and a lot of other people um, who thought about these issues. It's, you know, in general, it's very comforting when, when social science uh, reinforces scripture. <laughs> 
I have to say, it's a, it's a wonderful thing uh, when that kind of thing happens. Um, that is, that's not necessarily the motivation for all social science, but that being the case. Now, the linearity of these models. You know, <clears throat> we're at the far left part of the tail of charitable giving. People, uh, I wish we had the problem of people giving too much. I wish we had the problem where I could say, look, I got because I know there's nonlinearity in there someplace. But with any model, even if you have nonlinearity when you're at the corner, you can fit a straight line to it. And that's what's going on here. Now, should we, in subsequent research, should we expand this out to look internationally, to look at very, very high giving levels, to look at giving levels under different circumstances, and consequently to, to, to use different empirical specifications that, that, that fit the data better? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want a whole bunch of PhD students to use my models in different ways with different data that try to dig into these types of things. And, and there are myriad other questions that we don't know the answers to that, that this stuff provokes. You know, people often ask me, what kind of charitable giving gives the best, you know, that gives the best investment return? And the answer to that is the American Enterprise Institute, incidentally. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, we don't know. Probably it is what matters the most to you. Or, I mean, there are all of these types of questions that we could dig into that are the important research questions of the future. I've just scratched the surface on this. You know, what we need in general, I think there's a research agenda to understanding this is, now, this is the essence of faithful economics, is an exploration of the worldly implications of the virtues that we hold and we believe in as Christians. And that means a big research agenda. Think what we can do that other people can't do and don't want to do. Think of the research that we can stimulate. Just the incredibly insightful and interesting questions that you asked that when I was doing this research initially, I didn't even think of. Working together, I think the sky's the limit. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, uh, actually, I'm a Catholic also, and uh -huh. uh, grabbing the book, uh, one of the first natural responses was to uh, talk to a lot of my theologian friends. I teach at a Catholic school. There's a lot of them around. And, uh, and the response that I, I, I wanted to say was thinking about what institutions in society have a comparative advantage to pass on the kind of values that would matter. And uh, what I found was a very interesting phenomenon in that many, many theologians and philosophers who were conservative also sort of shared a historical bias against markets. And many liberals had a bias against markets for sort of social justice kind of perceptions. So that both groups were surprisingly hostile to something that I think your book gets at, which is, is it the market that decays society and then other things break down? Or other things matter first, preserve those institutions. So my argument to them was, well, preserve the institutions. I was curious what, what kind of progress you've had in sort of making that case, not as necessarily even a defense of markets per se, but rather uh, Fogel's kind of argument that lots of people who are really good in the values arena are making economic arguments and, and AWOL in the, in the values kind of discussion. Right. Um, it, is, it is true that, I, mean, I think that a hallmark of successful research in social science is that it makes people on both sides mad. Right? It's a, when, you, when, you, when you do work that exposes some surprising uh, empirical truth, but that which you believe is truth nonetheless, that people are uncomfortable with it because it, it challenges established ways of thinking. Um, I think the, the big takeaway that, that we can use from this, that we can employ very, very productively from this, <clears throat> is, is to say, is to point out, we know as economists that there, it's market failure and capitalism failure are not the same thing. Or not. I mean, who, who on earth would say that, among standard economists, would say that markets don't fail? Yet there is this belief that because we've seen dreadful weaknesses in the current interpretation of the capitalist system, who would say that that's evidence that capitalism is a failure? Or people who would argue against what has just happened as being a failure of capitalism to say it's because markets can't fail. Those are both naive arguments that are simply ignorant of economics. And I think the biggest problem is that there's not enough good economic thinking outside of the world of economics. I think to a very large extent, we can do a whole lot of good simply by teaching microeconomics. As strange as everybody should take microeconomics is what it boils down to. Because they would understand what we do. We say, of course, markets failed. Of course, markets fail all the time. Now, what should we do about it? Well, that's a different matter, is the kind of things that we're talking about. And, but I can tell you one thing that we can do in this case, according to these data, is that we can work for a more virtuous society. 
we can work for greater secular and faithful virtue. That's something that I can tell you is going to be really good for markets. There is a connection between markets and morality. If you want better markets, work for better morality. And that's something that I think just about everybody can get behind. I think left, right, and center, people who, who are critical of capitalism, people who are not so critical of capitalism, with any kind of sophistication about the way that markets work can understand that there is this connection between the human soul and the human character and the way that we work together in market circumstances. Thanks. Yeah, I'm Jim Henderson here at Baylor. Uh, I'm, I'm a little sensitive here uh, since we're only two days past <laughs> tax day. <laughs> And uh, one of the statements you made earlier in your, in your talk was that giving was patriotic, and which implies to me that if you give more, you're more patriotic. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> my, my question is, how do, how, do you, how do you address the difference between giving, and I, I think I may know the answer, what you're going to say, the difference between giving and paying taxes? Mm. As our vice president said earlier in the campaign, that Paying taxes is patriotic. The implication is paying more taxes is more patriotic. So what's the difference mm -hmm. between giving voluntarily and paying taxes, which is not voluntary, in this whole thing? Um, it's, most of us would agree that coerced virtue is not virtue. Most of us would agree about that. Indeed, you can have uh, a lot of private morality with no voluntary liberty. And you can have a society that doesn't function and is not ultimately very virtuous at all. Think about the Taliban, which is, by most definitions of virtue, uh, highly moral and highly virtuous, yet with a com completely bereft of liberty and with very, very low uh, levels of any measure of, of psychological or economic success. It's one of the things that we have to find. Now, the difference between I mean, I feel your pain about the taxes, um, uh, and, and a lot of Americans do. I think, that, I think that Vice President Biden, believe it or not, I think he had it half right when he, said, when he talked about taxes and patriotism. My view is not that paying taxes is patriotic. My view is that not paying the taxes you owe is unpatriotic. That's my view. It's Caesar's coin is what we're talking about. But, but furthermore, it, 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 that feeds into virtue. And that metastasizes in all sorts of bad things that we, that we see in our lives, empirically, but also, but also I think you would agree with me theologically on that point. Um, when you coerce, I think, I think I'll, I'll go back to the final point, which is that the big difference that we see in experimentation is that under MRI, uh, under MRI testing, you find that people will brighten their mood when they give away resources voluntarily, but it will not create any benefit to them when they are coerced to give away resources. That's the inherent difference between voluntary giving and coerced giving. Is coerced giving important? Of course, because we actually all believe, I bet every single one of us believes that we need a public administration and that it needs resources. The question is, what should we pay for privately and what should we pay for publicly and how can we establish the firewall and how do we tell the government that this is what we're responsible for as free people taking care of our needs as citizens? Those are the questions that I think we need, those are the, ultimately the public policy questions we need to answer.